Hey everybody, welcome to the Obio podcast. This is Sofia Sanchez. Today I'm chatting with Elliot Hirschberg, a genomics PhD student at Stanford, research analyst and writer at Not Boring, which is a venture capital firm, and writer at The Century of Biology, which is actually the reason why I found Elliot, you know, serendipitously online on Twitter and why I'm so excited to ask him questions about creating content in the biotech world, you know, the Century of Biology for Context is a Substack newsletter that Elliot started in the pandemic. He wanted to have probably interesting conversations about preprints or at least help some people stay um, up to date with what's happening in the field because, you know, so many pa so many papers that uh, I guess that a brief, really well-explained summary of a paper is tremendously appreciated. Um, he is in the fields of bioinformatics, genomics, and just like, uh, I guess, biotech advancements in general. That's what his newsletter is about. But recently, interestingly, he's gotten attention from people in the VC world. So that's what led to him uh, working at Not Boring and actually to starting to write more articles from a VC perspective, you know, analyzing startups and the market and other stuff like that. So yeah, as I was saying in this episode, I will ask him about uh, that itself, writing, but also touching on topics like, um, you know, the so-called problem in academia, funding, publishing, etc., solar punk vibes or actually biopunk vibes. And things like um, VC, like the perspective of a VC in the life sciences. So I really hope you find this episode as interesting as his newsletter is. Definitely go check it out as you listen to this episode. Not sponsored, but it's good. I really recommend it. Let's get started. Yep. Yeah, so hey, Elliot, thank you so much for coming. I'm excited to have you here. And I guess... I want to ask you about your Zoom background. Are you a solar punk optimist? <laughs> Thanks, Sophia. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, I am. I, that's an interesting question for solar punk um, or, or what the general terminology would be. I'm, I'm definitely a bio optimist. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote about this a little bit recently of this, this sort of concept of um, veriditas, of just expanding life outwards. And I actually think that um, there were some previous generations that like, thought really hard about this. And there was a lot of optimism for um, sort of space technology and like post space race. There was this contracted um, NASA artwork of just like thinking about the future of um, civilization and space. And I feel like it's important to sort of think on those timescales and like have that kind of aspiration for humanity. I think it's, I think it's really cool. So I'm also definitely like a big sci-fi nerd. That's probably a part of it. Yeah, cool. I actually did read Veriditas, one of your latest newsletters, and I found it interesting. It's meaning in Latin. It's, it has to do with fertility, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, um, originally from, um, at least, at least what I sort of cite is from um, the Mars trilogy by Kimsley Robinson. And it's this beautiful book that's kind of this examination. It's like one of the most in-depth um, descriptions or sort of explorations of, um, of space colonization and terraforming. And um, there are these scientists who just who have this, this view of like veriditas, right? Of being able to um, really, really appreciate the sort of insanity and the beauty of, of life in sort of the cosmic background, right? And like, in like 
chaos life sort of popped into existence and really I think we really like appreciate that. that we have to we have to really cherish that and like try and maintain that yeah for sure now I guess moving on to a little bit more to your background you're doing your PhD at Stanford right now can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what your research focuses on yeah I'm a I'm kind of like a wandering scientist um, I've done a little bit of uh, biology I started out as a bench scientist um, and eventually sort of became more of a, um, a tool builder and building computational methods. Um, I think my, my core focus is to, to build things that sort of accelerate um, the, the work of, of scientists and of biologists. Um, and so right now there's like this um, in the lab that I work in, um, there's been a research direction of sort of computational approaches um, to natural product discovery. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about how we can search for interesting things within all of the genomic data that's available um, and sort of building tools to do that. That's kind of what I'm excited about right now. Hmm. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like uh, just exploring the genome, I guess, finding out new things. How does that look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's sort of been, you know, interesting discoveries of what are called biosynthetic gene clusters of these units within genomes that can um, synthesize natural products. And so there's this question of if you're going to do direct synthetic chemistry to explore things, um, or are you going to look for, for sort of where it's occurred in nature? And I think that um, in general, like one of my uh, views is that there's like so many amazing things to discover within all of these, um, these genomes that like we should build the sort of algorithms and approaches and, and tools um, to, to find them. It's like, I, I spent a long time working, not a, a huge amount of time, but, you know, a, a chunk of my research time working on, um, on genome browsers, you know, again, just like looking through genetic information, comparing data. Um, it's kind of a focus. Cool. Out of curiosity, I've, well, the clear trend is like starting to use more computational tools to analyze biology. And, you know, everyone talks about this like biology, uh, big data, and then using uh, these tools for it. But I'm curious to know, in your experience, what has been the hardest part about doing what you do? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's, a, couple, there's a couple components. Um, for one, I think in, in biology, like where the rubber meets the road, like where you actually see a lot of progress is going to come down to an experiment. Um, and so like I have found, um, you know, a lot of joy in like making something where there's an actual sort of empirical or experimental prediction. And you like do that in a lab and you see it, you like see the result of your work. And so I think like closing, making sure to sort of close that loop um, to have all the progress that like that you're not just working on like a software program that's like, you know, a problem that's like really fun for, for engineering but not gonna have that sort of like tangible um, experimental benefit. I also do think that um, at least within academics so far, um, there is sort of a lack of recognition, especially in terms of funding for doing um, tool building and development. And so it can be like a little bit of a um, secondary uh, sort of uh, focus. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I, I guess um, it's part of what you wrote in one of your latest essays, right, like um, about preprints and so on, and uh, kind of touching on this academic problem and funding and journals and so on. Uh, what I generally heard is, you know, 
there people are trying to fund just like ideas that can be immediately translated into economic results. And so that it's interesting that they don't see like the maybe the potential that these tools can have. Yeah, and I think um, you know if you just like look at the um, you know net value of or you know the, the the amount of research that's being funded by the NIH and they have like sort of an annual budget of fifty billion dollars um, and they fund a huge amount of projects and um, you know there's a huge number of different science projects that are all powered by this sort of set of core open source tools like around the world even outside of the NIH and um, a ton of people are still applying for like a 12 million dollar grant from the CZI to maintain their um, their tools where like there's just a real disproportionate level of um, of funding that goes to some of the stuff that's like a little bit more behind the scenes of like the tools that you're running for your analysis and not like the full-blown sort of experimental result. Um, so sometimes it just like doesn't quite show up into um, like grant models. Um, I think it's changing though. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah. And I guess diving a little bit more into that problem, I, I guess it's been talked about a lot recently. Um, we've I guess, heard a lot about the promises of Web3 in the space and changing the incentives for funding and even the uh, in terms of IP and so on. What are your thoughts on that? Do or have you maybe heard about other ideas potentially? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I've been hanging out with uh, with Packy McCormick at, at, uh, at Not Boring, who's like, definitely a web three enthusiast. And I, I'd say I, I would consider myself like cautiously optimistic um, mm -hmm. where I, I view it as like, there's a sort of set of um, super exciting, like institutional experiments that are being run right now in terms of um, how to structure and fund science, like what it looks like to um, for the, at the like sort of org chart level of how to do science, you know, like Alexi Guzzi in, in Boston is doing new science and like thinking about you know, empowering young people to really drive their their projects super early in their careers, have the resources they need. Um, there are like brand new institutes. Like I'm I'm here in the Bay Area at Stanford, and there's like the Arc Institute that's just you know like building out a, a, another different type of of science. There's Arcadia in the East Bay that's mm -hmm. um, you know this this like what they call like a research and development company. They're like exploring how to publish and do all this stuff. Where I would put sort of Web3 and, and this DSI stuff is like in that bucket of um, different experiments that are being run in structuring science. So there's like, you know, these projects, these like DAOs and like VitaDAO that's like funding real projects and doing stuff. And so I think they totally deserve, you know, to be given credit for that and like put in the bucket of like really interesting um, current, you know, experiments and like in, in structuring and funding science. Mm. Yeah, because just uh, like out of curiosity, I see that the um, the publishing like method right now could be only seen as a as a result, as a symptom of like what's behind, which are the incentives behind actually doing research. Um, but like double tapping on on publishing itself, uh, like these DAOs, they're they're funding, but. Is there anything you've seen in terms of actually publishing papers, you know, to kind of change that model? Uh, yeah, just 
out of curiosity, like, I wonder why something like Web2, you know, just putting ads on these journals online wouldn't work. <laughs> totally. I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting, like, um, just the general evolution. I feel like um, is it for, for you thinking about like incentive, that's a good, that's a good general thing to consider, because I feel like incentives do really matter. They really like drive communities and like the way that people behave. Um, and so I think there is kind of like a, a negative incentive or like a, a high cost with the, the incentives in the current publishing system. Um, yeah, I mean, I think web two things are really exciting. Like, I, you know, like preprints, there's, there's no web two. It's like, you know, we're talking simple web pages that look like they're, you know, web one, the, when you look at Byercraft, but it's an incredible yeah. um, platform and technology where like just getting the social incentives to the point that um it was perceived as like a benefit or um a value that was like consistent with the rest of academics for preprints like that like it was a huge win for using the internet but also just like improving social incentives like it was like it was like a social engineering win too for how much it's it's really like um been adopted and taken off um And then I think, yeah, there's like a lot of interesting potential um, ways that we could like improve on curation and incentives. There's like Web3 people that are trying stuff like Brian Armstrong from, from Coinbase has this project called uh, Research Hub, which is kind of interesting. You get like a coin associated with like curating papers and stuff. So like there, there's some angles there. Um, yeah, I think I think there's like, Another uh, experiment and model that I think is really interesting um, in, in publishing is like what you see in machine learning, um, where effectively like they have the same preprint infrastructure that we do in the life sciences. So like for we have bioarchive, they have archive. But then where I think like we're worse off than them, and maybe this is like a grass is greener type scenario, but we have the magazine structure of like these super expensive magazines where you, you publish in them, they're, they're sort of really prestigious. And there's like this really intensive rebuttal process and like the, the amount of time that goes into publishing them. In machine learning, they all post preprints. And then those preprints are submitted to, to conferences. And there's um, a much more rapid turnaround on, on conferences um, to sort of assess what a really interesting, you know, like what the top preprints are, the ones that get the big conference um, presentations, conference paper. And I feel like it's also, um, you know, like Web3 is trying to create representations of, of sort of digital scarcity, but a conference paper is like using physical scarcity, where like only the best papers can end up actually like being on stage and being presented. Um, and so like there is sort of a Um, a value in like curating at, at, at that stage. Um, so I think like it's, it's worth looking at how other fields publish, um, how other fields use preprints. But I think in, in general, it's just a huge win that we're even at the stage now in life sciences using preprints so in such a standard way. Very interesting, for sure. Uh, another point I wanted to touch on is the like act of creating these essays itself like um you as a i guess biotech uh, communicator or content creator um and the first question i have there is 
well, your your motivation initially, as I read, was like summarizing certain papers for yourself and uh, making life easier for other people in that sense. Could you talk to us a little bit about um, that and if it's evolved over time? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's like it's it's been it's grown a lot more than I I really expected. Um, I started during COVID. And I was uh, working remotely as a software developer. Um, didn't have the same sort of outlet of the the seminars and the things that I liked um, working in person at a, at a university. And so I just kind of like you know as as you mentioned, like I I really started it out to to summarize papers, um, to sort of structure my own you know reading habit, and also just kind of like to get feedback from other scientists. Um, to get some of that, you know, the, the, the general thing that I didn't feel like I was, I was getting during COVID. And I thought like my whole game plan was like, I had published, you know, preprints and, you know, and like, and like papers before. And I was like, it would be like, I would feel so excited if, you know, somebody reviewed my, like you did this cool highlight of my work and shared it. So it was really like, kind of like for the scientists and also, um, you know, to, for, for just kind of to like, to, to lower the reading burden, you know, summarizing papers for other people in the field. I think that like happened to a modest degree, um, but I also just got exposed to like a totally different world. I didn't really realize like the whole newsletter ecosystem and like the, the excitement within tech. And so like all of a sudden I had like way more people reading it than I thought and like, investors reading it and like all these different people and like kind of founders. Um, and I feel like it was my, my first real exposure to kind of VC and, um, I've kind of evolved, um, some of my interest through those experiences. And like, it's, it's led to a ton of different interesting directions that I had 0% intention when I was, when I was just starting it, like trying to summarize full preprints. Cool. Uh, apart from the course or kind of yeah, I, I would like to call it Corza that you took. I, I think it was a eight uh, VC or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I suppose it must have helped uh, to get sort of a sense of the VC ecosystem. But coming out of that, how has your thought process changed to like create, I guess, to communicate ideas in a different way? Because um, even with founders, right, the, the way they explain their technology to investors may not be the same to uh, the way they explain it to customers or, you know, to more technical investors. How has that changed for you? Yeah, it was it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, so I did the, the fellowship with um, EBC and I feel like I've been um, a general startup nerd and like following interesting stuff for a while, like since college, where it's just like, oh, like, you know, this crazy idea is happening. Like, I, like, I feel like one of my early ones that I was really excited about was, um, was like transcriptic before it was turned into Stratius, just like cloud labs and all this kind of stuff. So like, I've been, I've been kind of like following, you know, even before that, just like interesting biotech things. But I feel like um, kind of getting the VC angle and doing that fellowship it's like you, you, every experience you do, you get like kind of a new toolbox and, um, you know, VCs have like certain sets of tools for like how they analyze companies of like, 
business and science risk and like all of these, these different kind of tools. And so I feel like um, my analysis of sort of startups and technology has improved from that like uh, investor lens. Um, and that's something that I kind of like in, in some of my more recent uh, writing as I've thought about companies and like started writing about some of that stuff, um, I'm just continually trying to improve on. Yeah, right. So you, you mentioned a couple of different factors like the technology, the market, I guess the founders as well, intellectual property. Um, now that you're working with Not Boring, what are some of the factors that you analyze as someone, by the way, who's leading the, the biotech section of their portfolio, I guess? <laughs> yeah, it's been a ton of fun. Um, I think what's cool about investing and like one thing that sort of draws me to it is that um, different people have like very, very different styles. And different funds um, like have very, very different return profiles that need, they need based on their capital. I think this is also like important to understand for um, founders that are looking to, to raise capital um, is that like it's, it's going to be a different diligence process, you know, like, like radically different depending on who you're working with and like what they're um, what really like moves the needle for them. Um, we're a really small and scrappy fund with like a real focus on writing. Um, Packy, who, who started Nat Boring, built it out of his um, his newsletter first. And I similarly, like, I've really gotten closer to, to investing um, from, from really like deeply writing first. Um, and so we, we do care a lot about companies that have like incredible stories where there's just a, um, a real arc that like someone out there is doing something crazy that could totally change the world. And like, we want to help people do that. We want to help tell that story. And, uh, and, and like, I think just that sheer level of, uh, of excitement, enthusiasm for like, what somebody's vision is, um, is important. So that's kind of like a founder um, focused. Um, we're also trying to be, you know, thoughtful about, um, about markets. So, you know, like an investor that's like very, very market centric, like Eli Gill, who's just like kind of first thinking really hard about like what the actual market is for a company and then for kind of the, the, um, the team. And, um, I think, you know, just sort of from a preference and the way that I, I do diligence as a human, there's like a real emphasis on, on, on both of those components. And I'm sort of young and, and still learning how to, to weight them as I, as I get more experience. Hmm. Very interesting as well. And now like getting into, I, I, again, into the process of writing itself, I see that you're quite consistent and I've heard that, you know, consistency creates traction overall in any kind of content creation. So what, do you have any like tips or advice for people who want to follow a similar path to you? I'm being quite selfish here in my question because, uh, yeah, I really admire your work and would like to, you know, keep on building my my content creation skills. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, I think consistency is important. I think some of it is just kind of uh, discipline. And, and like, I think um, there's sort of like two factors to, to consistency that I've, I've always found um, in my own work, which is like, uh one 
genuinely liking the thing that you're doing enough that it's um, in the category of like deep enjoyment and like really giving you something and not taking something away. Um, because typically that like where the value accrues in life is like later down the road from like doing something for a very long time to get good at it. And so like, I, I very much view my newsletter in the category of like every single time, like I'm still learning a ton about how to actually write and tell a story and like, don't expect anyone to read it. That's like, that's like my, my stance every time. Um, so like in the face of that, you have to really enjoy it. Like, I just, I just love writing. I was actually an English major before I ever did science. No way. Wow. And so like, it's, it's come naturally to me for a while. And like, you have to find the thing that like, if it's podcasting or writing or like curation or whatever, like whatever it is, like tweeting, there's always like, there's like science TikTok. There's like this really talented science TikTok person, Julia, um, (laughs) you should check out in my, in my cohort actually at Stanford. Um, so like whatever it is that you just like really genuinely enjoy doing as a, as a starting point so that you don't burn out. And then like, once you find that finding like a routine that you can just hammer out and stick to and like, kind of like enjoy the grind in some ways. Like I, I get up at six every morning. I write every single morning. Um, I don't write for like my entire day cause I'm doing my PhD and like helping out with investments and stuff. And so like, I, I, I'm like done writing like early, like I, you know, like get up early, done early. And it's amazing how much things compound if you just do them small amounts every single day, like over time. Like if you did like a hundred pushups a day, you're going to get in good shape. It's not that much. It doesn't take that long, but if you just do that. And I feel like um, for a lot of the stuff that I've been proud of, both in like science or writing, it's been a matter of like, getting into a um just the steady like rhythmic grind i think that doesn't work for everything but for things that are really like endurance things um that's what it's all about one one little like side story on this one of my favorite writers is um Hariki Murakami he's got this great memoir that's called like what i think about when i'm when i'm running and cuz he was a runner for most of his life and he talked about like what his life was like when uh he was writing and he writes every single day like when he's like deep in the process of writing a novel he writes from five to nine every morning exercises and swims the rest of the day and goes to bed super early and does it again and his books are kind of dreamlike and interesting i think that's because like he's just in this like deep rhythmic like process where um the days just kind of like blend into each other and i don't know what it says about me or my personality maybe this is like a big tell but i'm like that would be great (laughs) like if i could like do the same thing in that pace and like get into that like uh routine that's when i feel like i really like produce good science produce good code good writing but finding that out about yourself if it's like five to nine in the morning five to nine at night, like finding that time window in the day, um, kind of learning those things about yourself, I think is um, really valuable. You mentioned this book, and I've kind of heard that to be a good writer, you need to be either or both a a good thinker and uh, read a lot as well. Do you have any other book recommendations, something that's been on your bookshelf or 
that you're reading recently? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I do have recommendations. I also I also think that for science and technology, so like the typical recommendation for for being a good writer is to be a good reader, which I agree with. I read a lot. I've read a lot for a long time. Um, I also think like doing stuff is really valuable for science writing. Um, where like I noticed this recently, like Nico McCarty, who writes Codon Magazine, another amazing um science newsletter he was like he was like doing a phd in science like he, he's like done a bunch of science and it comes through like where like um it's good to like have experiences also in life um like one of my favorite writers hugh howie has this um this quote about writing that it's like a little bit like being a, a coffee filter we have like all this stuff kind of pouring through you so you have to have like stuff mm -hmm. flowing through to like write interesting things. And that's like in part, like reading is totally a part of that, but it's like everything else to like go on trips, talk to people, do science. Like it, I think that that all adds a lot of value. That being said, book recommendations. I'm a total Kimson Lee Robinson fan. So like one of my all time favorites is the Mars trilogy. That's where Veritas really inspired me. <laughs> um, his recent book, Ministry for the Future is this like, really detailed analysis of um like very near-term responses to climate change brilliance um i also kind of alternate with like uh non-fiction and um this really interesting book on a similar kind of climate note is called the wizard and the prophet um fascinating i might like try and leave that into my writing soon too so those are a couple <laughs> great and i agree with uh the input output thing and writing like otherwise I guess it becomes kind of a paradox in which you like spend all the time writing and then it's like if you were trying to write a biography like an autobiography but then spend all the time writing it instead of living it so that's that's cool <laughs> yeah 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 for sure um actually I yeah, I was having a call uh, previously because I'm doing like this course, uh, frequency bio kind of related to biotech startups as well. And this topic came up like um, debating whether it was more useful or if it was a better investment of time, say for an undergraduate like myself to build skills in computation or in biology, like wet lab biology. And what someone said was that it could be better to build them in wet lab biology because um, you need data, right? Um, data is scarce right now. And like comparing how the majority of the population can have access to, to computational tools. Like maybe not everyone can have access to wet lab tools. So I found that interesting. But then this other person came up with like uh, the argument uh, that I agree with, which is like, what if we are automating all of wet lab biology very soon? Curious to know your thoughts on that. I feel like I had this discussion with uh, with Tony about like the value of uh, of doing wet lab in that instance where like you you, you are like Tony Kulesa yeah yeah we yeah, like, yeah yeah then uh we, we had uh he, he was a guy <laughs> I think no, I think that's like I think that's really uh funny and, and like in like uh a reasonable uh, strategic angle I, I think it does come down to like one of the this one computational biologist Klaus Wilk um had this the great little like quip on his page for like applicants to his lab 
just like we do computational biology and like if you are okay with like staring at code and symbols on a screen all day long then that's going to work for you but if you'd rather like be in a lab and like moving around liquid and like working with organisms it's like not and i think like you have to like even in the global strategic analysis of like what's a better career decision like i said like if if you're burned out every time from coding or doing experiments like that'll become super apparent and so like spending a little bit of time doing both and kind of seeing what they're like seeing what you like more like what you're naturally better at um is just like invaluable so like i spent a ton of time doing experimental science before i got really into computational biology and, like i just found that i like really enjoyed programming more from direct experience it wasn't like derived uh through through logic it was like i like spent a ton of time working with mice and doing microscopy and spent a ton of time coding and just like liked one of them more i don't know which which one do you like more do you do you feel like you've gravitated towards um either of them do you like both damn that's a that's a hard question but you are definitely in between the best of both worlds i i would say that i definitely want to be in the intersection just because of its uniqueness like um i've read about like the the team model of knowledge like having both breadth and depth uh, because you can have like a bunch of people in each of these areas who only do computation or who only do biology but people who do both um they're more quite rare uh so i guess from a like unfair advantage perspective i would try to do that i think that's totally true there's a there's a whole paper about this that I'll, I'll send it to you it's um it's called anti-disciplinary science by this scientist sean eddy um and he argues for exactly this that like in the team approach if you have all this different stuff and like different brains and you have like the organizing committee where it's like the subdivision on molecular biology and the subdivision on computer science and like there there's like clear org charts it's like very different from someone that's like spent a decade amassing knowledge and like getting different smatterings of like molecular biology and like CS. I personally kind of take that approach to science. I've like bounced around way more than like I should have, you know, it's like, <laughs> I've taken, like, I feel like I know a little bit about a, a lot of stuff. Um, and like, it's just sometimes more fun. So like, if that's what you like to do, like keep, keep doing it. Cool. One of the last questions I have is, Right now, also being in the VC world, I wonder how important credentialism is there. I mean, you're you're doing a PhD, and it seems to me that a lot of the people I know in biotech have PhDs. So, from an investor's point of view, um, how much do they care about that? Um, so, we have backed a founder that does not have a PhD. I love the whole like bio dojo thing of like lots of young people um getting into biotech i think it's changing i think biotech certainly is like more credential obsessed than other disciplines in tech and that's like probably not great if we want to become like a mature and widespread industry um i don't know i think like i'm of the opinion and of the generation that like tech has been this incredible existence proof that young people can do shit Right, that we can like build things, get things done, like build massive, you know, generational companies. And I think like I'm certainly a young person in like science and investing and 
you're sitting here like involved in all this stuff and like that's awesome and so i think um there will probably be more opportunities than there are now um without the like phd credential that's probably a good thing um I don't think that you're given any like magic knowledge from doing a PhD. You just spend a long time working on like a project and go super deep on a thing. But then when you like pop back out, you're not necessarily like some amazingly more credentialed person in like some other area. And I think that like some of that kind of uh, uh, gatekeeping will hopefully reside as you become more established industry. I like that. It's motivation. <laughs> Last question, if you could tweet something that the whole world read, what would that be? Or in fact, the whole universe, if we managed to make the Veriditas vision a reality? Whew. All the easy, the, the easy questions today. Um, if, I could, if I could tweet something that everybody would read. I don't know. I really believe in like in, in in like the sentiment of like worshiping growth in the biological sense of just really appreciating the the sort of incredible beauty of life in the universe, the experience of of being alive, having a body. And I think I would just I would I think that would be my tweet to worship growth in the biological sense, you know, not in economic sense. <laughs> I love that. Well, it was awesome talking with you, Elliot. Really, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can tag me on Twitter at SofiaIsBio if you did, if you learned something new, if there's something you don't agree with, if you want to share it with friends. I really appreciate that as well. I'll see you in the next episode. Peace. <laughs>